2: Barbican Screen Talks. Hello and welcome to this, the latest in a new series of Barbican Screen Talks, where we bring you classic interviews with some of the world's leading filmmakers. Elsewhere in the series, you can hear conversations with one of the boldest new voices in British cinema, Ben Wheatley, and the woman who reinvented cinematic social realism, Joanna Hogg. But in this podcast, we hear from a man who is among the most imaginative and influential directors working today. Born in Minneapolis in 1940, Terry Gilliam moved to the UK in his 20s. He first came to prominence as the animator in the Monty Python comedy troupe. As era-defining as his surreal contributions were, they only hinted at the genius to come. Gilliam's directorial debut came in 1975 with Python's first feature film, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, still seen as one of the greatest comedies of all time. Since then, he's taken us on a series of journeys into stunningly realised alternate worlds, from the historical heist caper Time Bandits to the surreal dystopia of Brazil and the neo-noir science fiction of Twelve Monkeys. But in this conversation from 2009, Terry Gilliam talks to the late film critic Anwar Brett about the Imaginarium of Dr Parnassus, Faustian fairy tale about a troupe of travelling actors. The production of this film was devastated by the death of lead actor and Gilliam's close collaborator, Heath Ledger, just a third of the way through filming. In the interview you're about to hear, Terry Gilliam discusses how the shock of Ledger's death brought him close to abandoning the film, how Johnny Depp was instrumental in persuading him to continue and how, ultimately, the film became a touching tribute to their much-loved friend. Elsewhere, he reveals his plans for the Don Quixote project that has been stuck in development hell for nearly two decades. He is also remarkably candid about his experiences working in the Hollywood machine, from struggles to secure financing, to the agonies of press junkets and test screenings. But first, a note. This interview has been retrieved and restored from the Barbican's film archive. So occasionally, during the Q&A, our roving microphones don't quite get to the audience member in time. I'll be back later to help with one particular question that the mic missed. I'm Eleni Jones, and this is Barbican Screen Talks, with the truly visionary Terry Gilliam.
1: Thank you. (laughs) (sighs) Always a slightly reassuring sound, I imagine, at these uh, times. What? A round of applause. Oh, that's what stage. that was. Oh, geez, yes. <laughs> Thank you very much. You've made an old man very happy. <laughs> but to begin, Terry, we all know, obviously, of the tragedy that struck the production um, and, and I suppose the immense effort that went into bringing the film back into mm. you know, creative life. Tell us about how quickly that decision was made and how easy it was to see how it could be done.
3: Easy is a funny word. Easy is a very funny word.
1: Uh,
3: Obviously, when Heath died, we were all shocked. I mean, he was a very, very close friend. He wasn't just a great actor. He was a dear friend, basically, to everybody involved. Uh, And it was impossible because we had been working together on a Saturday night in London. We had just finished shooting. In fact, it's the scene where the theater collapses and, you know, Percy's banging away with his gun and Heath is running after the wagon the last shot shot of Heath is him on the back of that wagon disappearing around the corner and we finished at midnight with that shot I go to Vancouver to prepare for the following week's work Heath goes to New York uh, and uh, two days later he's dead so this was basically impossible I mean it could not be happening he was so full of life and energy doing his own stunts There was this is not happening but it was a fact an imagination (laughs) at the best of times and the worst of times doesn't work your friend is dead so I I mean I basically gave up I said it's over the film is finished no way to finish this film Uh, and I quit and then I'm luckily surrounded by people like my daughter who is one of the producers Nicola Pecorini my DP who are bullies and don't respect the voice of the director and they kept kicking me I was down on the floor they kicked me until I got up and it it was a very it was a very difficult point. You can all, I'm sure, can imagine it. But I, one of the things that happened, and I think the second day when I was able to talk to anybody, it was I called Johnny Depp, and he was a very close friend of Heath as well, and I was just commiserating. And he said, "Well," and I said, "I don't know what I'm going to do. I think I'm just going to go home, call it quits." But I don't know. And he said, "Well, whatever you decide, I'm there." And that was a very, very important moment because at this point, the money and their wisdom and their sense of reality and reasonableness was running away because this film was not going to ever get finished it was over and that call to johnny when they heard about that and him saying what he said it just uh slowed the retreat and it gave us time i, I we talked about different things people said oh we'll get another actor to replace heath i said that's not going to happen there's no actor good enough to replace heath uh and i don't want to do that anyway And it it was it was came back to London, and it must have been the next week. I finally got my head around to the fact that let's just see if we can save this thing. And because Amy Nicola said we will have to finish this film for Heath, you know this is his last performance. Is not going to end up on some floor somewhere. You've got to do it. And I was saying, especially to my daughter Amy, who this was the first film really as a proper producer. I said, you don't know anything. You're inexperienced. (laughs) What are you talking about? I've been around, I've, I've seen some rough times. This thing is not going to be finished. Anyway, one, a week later, I finally got my head into some kind of shape and realized that okay, the character goes through the mirror three times, three different people, how about that? And if we change in the, the first time the drunk goes through, if his face changes, now, ah, oh, there's a precedent. And he's always, he, uh, the character of Heath is going through while other people are in there. We've already established the idea that other imaginations in there may be stronger than a single uh, imagination. And that was it. So three actors started calling around to all the friends of Heath because that was basic. They had to be friends of him. And Colin and Jude were available, uh, or they were able to adjust their schedule sufficiently so that it could slot in with the dance we were doing and a couple of weeks later we started up again I mean the rewriting was surprisingly quick because with Heath not there certain things could not be done there were scenes on this side of the mirror that just could not be done so gone uh, another scene I shifted across the one with Andrew and Jude uh, where Jude tells this true story of the Russians that originally was in the wagon with all the others but And I thought we could do it. It was later I realized I couldn't do it. So at all that time, I kept saying, you know, Heath is still around here. He's co-directing this film. He's co-writing this film. He won't let me do what I want to do. And the great extraordinary thing is
1: all the choices he made me make posthumously were better for the film. Uh, Just on the logistical point, though, tell us how long you had Johnny Four for all that screen time we see. I know. You look at that. We had him for one day and a second
3: day for three and a half hours that's how brilliant he is that's how extraordinary that guy is he arrived on set bingo he was just off and fired and there's, there's some very spooky things that happened because the last line he says at the pub when he's on the ground is don't shoot me I'm just the messenger Johnny arrives on the set and says can I add live a line I said well, yeah, well it's, it's uh, don't shoot me I'm the messenger I said what? That's the last line Heath ever spoke. Uh, And it's like, this is crazy. But that's, I think there's something that happens. I've always had this theory that when I'm making a movie, that I'm not making the movie, that those of us who are making there's the movie gods, or a platonic ideal of the film that's making itself, and we are just there to serve that thing, whatever it is. This film, more than anything I've done, was clearly the work of the movie gods, because I certainly didn't do it. And it was just, it was an extraordinary experience, because... When we were shooting it, I had no idea it was going to work. We just went step by step. It was like 12 by 12 by 12 by 12 by step program. Uh, Just keep doing it. And the crew, everybody said, whatever it takes, we're there. Uh, And so you don't very often get that outpouring of love and respect for somebody like they had for Heath. But he was special. And that's what this film is. And that's why they credit the end is the right one. I remember we were all sitting around one night, the cast and some of the crew in, in Vancouver, and I said, yeah, ah, they're beating me up. They, they say, contractually, it's got to be a Terry Gilliam film. I don't will not do that. And we just talked, and we all came up with Heath Ledger and Friends, which is appropriate, true, and honest. Yeah.
1: So the movie gods help you get the movie made. Uh, do we assume that the devil is somehow running a studio somewhere? <laughs>
3: No, luckily there was no studio attached. Wasn't that good? If we had had a studio involved in this film, because there was no American money, evil stuff, um, uh, it would never have happened. There's no studio that would allow us to continue to do what we were doing, to have Heath hanging from a bridge for his entry with lines like, why are you fishing dead people out of the river? He's dead. They would never allow that. thing. It was interesting. There was one line. I said, we are not changing the script the speech that Johnny gives about princes dying and everybody uh, never growing old, that was all written before, it was not a eulogy for Heath it was uh, all there and there's a line in the, in the monastery at the beginning when Christopher was talking about stories, uh, comedy a romance, a tale of unforeseen death, that we had written that in advance and he didn't want to say it and I said we have to this is the film Heath and I set out to make we continue that film and we do not compromise it And so, we were very lucky not to have well-meaning, decent-thinking people involved in this film. Because what we have is something that's
1: honest. (laughs) In in all reality, a Hollywood studio, any major studio, would have protected its asset by cashing in the insurance bond. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, there's no question.
3: I mean, that was the easy way out. Mm. I can tell you something. I haven't mentioned this other day. Here's how bad it is. Here's how films get made. You're in on a secret. Films start because when you're doing an independent production like this, you've got a bond company which is, you know, guarantees that the film will be finished at all costs. Now the insurance company does many things, but one of the key thing in this instance was it insures the essential elements. There were two essential elements, me and Heath. Then there's the bank that we've just had to sign a contract with. There's one other thing, and it doesn't matter all these contracts were not signed when we started the film that happens all the time but the deals are basically there it's honor, word of mouth, all that stuff but the contracts were not signed they were signed only four days before Heath died and can you imagine what the financial people were doing they had just signed away all this money and it's gone, we're doomed and so there was panic, absolute panic but uh, the call to Johnny was the key
1: just a quick word about Christopher Plummer. You mentioned him yeah. as Dr. Parnassus. I mean, he's a wonderful actor, uh, getting great roles at an age when other people might be thinking of retirement. But tell us a little bit about his contribution to the film.
3: Oh, Chris is the tentpole. He's the centre. He holds up the whole circus. Uh, I mean, We worked on 12 Monkeys together, and I really, really liked him and he is one of the greatest actors still standing I mean he's extraordinary I keep saying if there was ever a Mount Rushmore for thespians Chris <laughs> would be the first head up there and he was, he was, he, it was just extraordinary performance I mean I can throw the most silly ideas at him and he dignifies them he gives it you know, grace and then I sit there and say okay now Chris get ready for this You've got a double act with Tom Waits, okay? Now you've got a double act with Lily Cole. She's not acted before. And you've got a double act with Vern Troyer. You're the shortest guy in showbiz. How are you feeling about this, Chris? (laughs) And and he's just exceptional. I just just think watching him is a constant uh, wonderment. I mean, I think for anybody approaching the business of acting, just watch that. And that's what's interesting for someone, particularly like Lily, who had never really done any acting before one little bit in *Centrinians*, And she was surrounded by these brilliant actors. She's so smart, she watched, she watched and she learned. And that was incredible. Let's
1: have a question. Yeah.
0: Okay. Um, if um, Heath hadn't sadly died, what trajectory would Tony's character have taken? He was you was he destined to go through the mirror three times originally?
3: it would have been what you saw except it would be Heath doing it rather than Johnny or I mean that script didn't change what Heath had planned to do I don't know all I know is he had what he had done You know, he had created this chameleon character in the bits we saw because that was what Tony was about one minute he used to be Aussie the next to be Cockney the next to be Plummy English he was everything he was fluid and so he was building up all sorts of goodies for the other side now we will never see that and I think for me that is however wonderful this film is and I do think it's truly wonderful I would like to see that and we'll never get to see it just like Heath will never get to see this movie and that was why he joined up with this thing I said why do you want to do this when he slipped me this little note I said because I want to see this movie so the god of irony is winning today
1: perhaps you could expand on that story because he he approached
3: no it was I, I did a very subtle dance I'd like to take credit for it but I'd if I was planning it, it was subconsciously. We had a great time on Brothers Grimm. I just loved Heath, and uh, he just was exciting to work with because he was so full of energy and ideas. And there was a gravitas about his work. That, however silly he might be, it was always grounded into something really, really serious and profound. And and after Brokeback Mountain, he went through a rather strange year because is the guy who did not like whoring prostituting himself and going on to oprah winfrey and all that world of uh promoting a film he just didn't like doing that And he always sort of closed up because he just felt that's not my job my job is to be as good an actor as i can and not just a hustler and the Brokeback mountain thing i think really bothered him because he went out and, and his ideas probably sold his soul for publicity and then nothing came of it so there's a very funny year after that where he was saying yes to this, no to that, trying to stay somehow true to what he felt he was and what he should be doing. And um, there was a couple of projects I'd thrown at him, which it was sort of a yes and no, and it was a confusing time. So I was sending, because we were very close friends, and I would send him stuff, let him read it, but never ask him. And he was over here in London working on The Joker and he was working on an animated video for Modest Mouse a pop group that he was directing and it was his story and everything and he needed a place to work so I put him at work at my company Peerless Camera Company over in Bedfordbury and, uh, and he was working there and we'd see each other when I was in there and blah 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 and there was one day I was showing my storyboards to the effects guys and talking through all these scenes and in the middle of this, Heath was sitting there and he just slipped me this little note in the dark there, and I opened it. And said, "Can I play Tony?" And I said, "Are you serious?" He said, yeah, I want to see this movie. And I thought at that point, money, no problem, twenty-five million, <laughs> go to America, pay some piss. This is easy. And we couldn't get any money out of America, basically. And this is this is the frightening thing about that li- lovely little village called Hollywood. There's a lot of inbreeding there, I think, is what's going on. That's why the, the mental state is a, a bit limited. Um, and it's uh, you know uh, frog-footed people, you know, uh, bat-eared, you know, all sorts of strange inbreeding in, in goes on there. And and I'm saying, like, wait, this is the end of 2007. I said. Here's what's going to happen. Summer of 2008, The Dark Knight is going to come out. Heath Ledger is the Joker. He will be the biggest star on the planet when that comes out. We are the next film. We'll be coming out a couple months later. Does this seem like a good deal? And you just blank stares, blank stares. They couldn't imagine, you know, seven months ahead of These are frightened people, terrified of losing their jobs. And, uh, in fact, they are losing their jobs. Most of the people I talk to are gone.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we have another question just behind that row,
2: yeah. Uh, you spoke
0: before about the extraordinary Johnny Depp and your ability to bring films back from the brink. Uh, just wondering if we might get to see the return of Don Quixote de la Mancha.
3: Whoa! Uh, yeah, Don Quixote's got three legs on it at the moment, on the horse. Yeah, and it's I've rewritten the script, Tony Grizzoni and I had a major rewrite of getting it back after seven years in the French legal wilderness. It scales fell from my eyes I was blind and now I can see it's, I mean, quite honestly seven years of being away from that script not reading it was the best thing it could have happened because suddenly I realized this wasn't as great a script as I thought And I, mean, if, I think what we've done is really good but maybe again I'm fooling myself but I think it's really good now uh, Johnny is you know a bit busy doing Pirates 12 and uh, the Lone Ranger and everything his dance card is very full we've been talking and I said I can't wait John you know it's um, I'm doing it next springtime. You know, I want you but I'm going to do this thing I'm going to die very soon <laughs> and uh, so at the moment I don't think Johnny's in it so I'm thinking of it it's a new film I'm starting again but I think I've got Quixote that's the main thing <laughs>
1: To an outsider, Terry, the, the uh, character of Dr. Parnassus would seem to share a lot of things with you. I mean, was that the in- did that come about while you were writing it? Was that the intention going in that it's an expression of some of the experiences you've had over the years, um, trying to realize these visions? I, I mean, I don't,
3: I wasn't thinking of it that way, but I always said this is going to be a compendium of every, everything I'd done. It's the first original thing uh, I've written with Charles McCune in a long, long time. So it was a summation of a lot of the things I'm thinking, feeling, and but it's, you know, it's Charles is in there as well. We're both getting old and miserable, and it's a uh, and yeah. At a certain point, you begin to think, oh, wouldn't it be nice to get bigger audiences? Wouldn't it be nice to be Steven Spielberg? But that's not going to happen. So uh, it is that, and we invent this character. It was, it was an interesting writing process because we had no plan, we had no story when we began. It was just this ancient theatrical wagon arrives in modern London and nobody's paying attention to this extraordinary wonderful kind of thing that's being presented and that was it and then we just slowly built this together a character here a little thing there oh it will go through the mirror and then there'll be all this incredible fantasy and then I remember as Charles saying, but you know you got to call it halt to that at some point you got to have a crossroads you got to have a choice And once you've got a choice, there's got to be a choice between good and evil, or better or worse, whatever. But whatever the the good side is, the worst side, we know who's waiting at the end of that one. That's got to be the devil. So suddenly we have a devil now in this film. And it was a really interesting process to to start and and build like a piece of sculpture where you add and take away. Okay, we have another question
1: just here. You just mentioned the devil. Um, Was it intentional to cast Tom Waits?
2: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
1: He's played God in another film, and now he's got to play the devil in yours.
3: Well, it was funny because we had written it, and there was a Dutch animator friend of mine who wanted Tom to do a voiceover in his animation, and he said, can you get in touch with Tom? Because He knew I knew him and so I sent this stuff to Tom and Tom said, oh, I really don't want to do it I don't want to do it, but yeah if you got, uh, you got anything for me, Terry and I said, well, I got the devil and, <laughs> and he says, I'm in and he said, "He didn't read the script, done I mean, he's the perfect devil I can't imagine any uh, I mean, last night, and, uh, the premier introduced him I said, here's the man who writes songs for the angels and sings them with the voice of Beelzebub laughter Uh, Tom is one of the most extraordinary geniuses on the planet. I mean, nobody writes music like that. I mean, from the most sublime, romantic, sentimental, tear-inducing music to the most dark and disturbing and strange. What is he doing in here? He's just brilliant. (laughs) And he's a great actor. I actually wanted to use some of his music in the film, and he said, please don't.
1: Let me just be an actor. I don't imagine Christopher Plummer necessarily has a lot of Tom Waits CDs I mean, did, did, he, did he know of Tom's body of work or at least his reputation I, coming I, in I,
3: I never know Christopher is a mystery but the minute they got together it was just like two old musicians I mean acting the way Christopher does that's a musical talent he has the, the voice the rhythms the pauses the space and that's what Tom does and I just thought that together that was one of the great love stories of all time <laughs> Tom didn't serenade him with a course of Edelweiss or anything. <laughs> no, that was how we could get Chris's goat, any time. And then daggers would fly through the air. It's so funny how he really hates that. <laughs>
1: we all don't we all love him for that absolutely yeah you you talked about this theatrical wagon appearing on the streets of london i guess some not so very far from here some of those street scenes indeed all night shoots i suppose what was it like was it easy logistically to achieve that against these real historic backdrops yes
3: and no i mean it's always hard it was night it was the middle of the winter it was december it's freezing horrible i mean like the opening shot is over in Paternoster Square, which we could see from the restaurant tonight. But it's there. It's, and it's this dark side of St. Paul's because the lights leave a shadow on the dome. And that really intrigued me. But to drag that wagon, or have the horses drag the wagon across that square, we had to lay down a rubber road for a couple hundred meters to, to protect the, the pavement. Those are the interesting nights. <laughs>
1: Uh, if anyone else has a question perhaps it would be a good time yes Ooh. oh there's Got somebody a microphone oh she's getting
3: too excited quick towards you now
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, I was also wondering what's
2: the quickest you've ever written anything
3: oh god oh it's only the Python animations were quick <laughs> and I don't I don't write quick I, I sort of I don't know how to write I sort of discover things this is what it is you sort of work your way through I mean when we're adapting something that's easier it's like Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, Tony and I did it in eight days. Bingo. It was like, okay, if you're going to take this book, we're going to be gonzo screenwriters. And we did it eight days. Done. And then we all went our... Tony went to his place, I went to mine, we read it. We called each other up. The next morning he say it's crap, isn't it? And and we then spent two more days and finished it. But that was that was because we thought we know the book well there it is in front of us it's, it's, it's an editing process it really is you make some decisions about how you're going to approach something and then you edit because the book is there in that instance we made a very simple choice about what the book was about it was our version of Dante's Inferno and Dante and Virgil go on their little trip into, into the, the, the layers of hell now Dante is a Christian Virgil is a pagan so if you, we decided in the book and I think it's all justifiable that Hunter, Dr, Dr. Thompson there is a Christian because there's a certain morality at the heart of it it's, it's, it's enraged at what the world has become and Gonzo, we thought, should be a pagan and that was the approach and once you do that things start falling into place very quickly
1: when you come, Terry, every so often to go and do those round of meetings in Hollywood to mm. speak about future projects, is it, is it constantly like having to reapply for, for a job? You're always having to audition, in a sense, even though you have this tremendous body of work and you know, the many years of success. Do you find they always automatically yeah. know, or do they simply look at the list no. of uh, boxes?
3: No, no, it's figures? like the script. I know exactly the script when I go in there. So it's like doing a play, mm. and the script is, Terry... God, it's good to see you. Man, just love your work. God, I have loved everything. I remember when I was a kid. I remember Time Bandits. Oh, it changed my life. I have loved everything you have done, Terry. And then I say, Now, what do you think about the imaginary Doctor Dr. Parnassus? Well, problem, Terry. I'm not sure really if this one works. Everything else has been... Now, I've heard this for 25 years. I mean, the list gets longer of what they've loved and which films have changed their lives. But it's exactly the same scenario I don't, I don't know what I have to do I keep thinking now if I make a lot of money for them it'll be easier and it is true I mean uh, you know Fisher King did very well that was the first film I did well Brazil is really a product of the success of Time Bandits mm. uh, and then one Wenschelzen was the, the punishment for getting away with making Brazil and then you do Fisher King which is the first thing I did in Hollywood that I hadn't been involved in writing, but it was the most brilliant script I thought, and that was a big success. So Twelve Monkeys became easier, but it wasn't going to happen until I got Bruce Willis and Brad Pitt. So it wasn't so much easier actually, <laughs> and and then you go on, and then because that was successful, uh, um, you know, Monty, uh, what it was the film, Fear and Loathing, uh, got off the ground with a little bit more ease. But even in those, I mean, it's really surprisingly difficult because each one is not like the one that preceded it and Hollywood only thinks in franchise and sequel terms, that's all
1: So at any one time, and notwithstanding the Don Quixote project you talked about how many other things do you have bubbling away that you can perhaps work on and concentrate on? But
3: They, they don't bubble and I don't work on them, I don't concentrate on them, I put them in a drawer and forget them, basically because I've spent years of my life on these things you just got to, enough I mean there's Good Omens which is based on the book that Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman wrote absolutely brilliant book we wrote a great script that Neil and Terry are very happy with this is one of the biggest books that are. I mean I don't know 11 million copies it goes on and on can you get Hollywood I think first we've got to do it in a comic
1: book form and then they'll give us the money you've got to draw it first now <laughs> so in terms of the the Fate that awaits uh, Dr. Parnassus. Mm. What about the American opening? Is
3: that uh we, finally the deal was finally completed a month ago, uh, and it opens on Christmas Day. Uh, Sony Classics, have it. They open in New York and L.A. Christmas Day. I mean, I having not got the American money to start this project, and we did it with UK, Canadian co-production, on uh, French, German, Italian, and Spanish Japanese pre-sales. We did it completely separate from that that world then I thought now we've got Heath Ledger's last film we got Johnny Collin and Jude we're going to go out there and they're going to pay pay and pay to get their hands on this thing and that's not what happened I mean I mean our t- my timing is permanently bad there was a little thing called the credit crunch the world collapsed and suddenly Hollywood just panicked and we ended up getting less money than we were offering being offered which we didn't take the first time around uh, it's amazing but uh i don't know the guys we've got sony classics love it they're gonna i think do a good job a lot depends on how it does here in the uk because if it stumbles here hollywood panics Uh, what's interesting i've always railed against the power of hollywood the machine how we don't get to see independent films smaller films because we're up against you know, fifty million dollars on a uh, marketing uh, campaign that Hollywood does—it's it's a huge machinery that basically wipes out you know everybody's um, memory for anything else but that film that's coming out that week that is being sold to you twenty-four hours a day every time you turn left, right, or uh, look up or down. And so I got my wish so I got a film that's opening in England first which is absurd and then it'll open in France which is it's going all backwards and because what's going to happen is the pirated versions will be in America before it opens in America this never happens to America it's what happens to Europe and the rest of the world and now I'm getting my wish but it's my film that's being
1: punished (laughs) we have a question towards the back yeah shout I'll repeat the question I think
3: are you an actor can you project But your voice is lovely, I can hear it.
2: (laughs) Hi, this is Ellen, here to translate. The question is, does Gilliam ever read press reviews of his work? And if so, does he get annoyed with them?
3: Yeah, no, it's the one thing I keep trying not to do, and I really can't, I keep peeking. And it always hurts. I mean, I don't mind a bad review, if it's an intelligent bad review, that they actually understand what one is doing or why one is doing or what one's trying to do but when i just crap reviews made by some jerk who had 15 minutes to write it, it makes me angry you know we spend 3 years doing something and somebody's got a deadline he's got to knock it out in you know 15 minutes uh-uh. it's a very, it's actually a very bad system now because the newspapers the editors are pushing a lot creating a situation where You know, on the Thursdays or whatever it is, all the films of the week have to be reviewed. And this is nonsense. A reviewer should write about the things that he's passionate about, whether it's positive or negative, and then let it go at that. But now everything has to be done equally. So you've got guys writing reviews on something that just, you know, there's no need for it. Either it's a huge big film, it doesn't need it, or not. There's no space for properly considered reviews where people are spending their time... I mean, I'm not a great fan of critics anyway, but that's beside the point. There are good critics, and there are bad critics. There's there's people that aren't even critics because they have no idea. They're just... They're writing for the audience of the newspaper, not about what they think, which is always... That's like being in a focus group when you do research screenings, when people start saying, well, I personally like the film, but I don't think it'll work for, you know, Johnny down the block and over there, or the people that vote Republican. I mean, what are you talking about? Just... All you want is one person's opinion. that's all it's about, and you can agree or disagree, but at least give the work that people have spent a couple years, or two, three years to do, give it some respect, and just you can tear it apart, but do it with an intelligence and an understanding. It, it makes me crazy. I mean I'll tell you, this film was at Cannes uh, Festival and I think it was a big mistake because they put it on in the penultimate night. People are tired by that. Everybody's been watching it. how many films you watch in it? three or four a day? Mm. This is crazy. And the press screening is at eight thirty in the morning. At the end of two weeks almost. People are knackered. And you go in at eight thirty and you get beaten up by that? I mean I get angry. I mean it's just a way to treat the stuff. But that but the system is demanding that, isn't it? I mean, they don't even review um, new jeans as quickly as that. They wear them for a week or two to feel if they work. You know, you know, whatever the fashion magazines, they consider before they write about the, the new jeans or socks, whatever it is.
1: <laughs> so, so whose opinion do you seek out on, on each new project? Wh- whose uh, view matters the most to you? Is there someone close who always gives you a...
3: Not really. I mean, one of the things we've always done, and this started with the Python days... When we're cutting the movie, early days on, we start showing it to people. You bring in friends, you know, neighbors, and you start talking about it. Are we communicating clearly? Do you, where are you bored? What don't you understand? You know, and, and, and it's easy to talk to people when the film is in, in an unfinished form. It also can confuse you because you don't have the music on. You've got key elements which are essential. But if you, you, know, if you listen carefully and don't panic, you learn whether you're achieving whatever it is you're trying to achieve. So by the time I finish with the film, I know it's working as best as it's going to work, and it's working the way I want it to work. And you know whether a lot of people like it or a few people like it. So by the time we go to these pseudoscientific screenings in the stage of the research screenings, I'm never surprised. I know what's going to happen. I know how it works. So I think they're surprised because they think, you know, I'm this arrogant pig-headed you know, guy who just does what he wants to do it's not that at all I really want to reach people I really want to you know, get to them and so I want to do it as efficiently as I can with what we've got and then I find when a reviewer has been up all night long and he has to come in you know, before breakfast and blearily look at the thing it just makes me crazy come on, we've done some work it's like we're doing um, publicity for the movie which we've been doing a lot of you're put in a room and you could be in any, world, any part of the world, the curtains are drawn, there's usually a poster behind her, there's two cameras, and every five minutes, somebody with their own television show walks in and does a five minute interview. It's the same questions, it's the same answers, it's the same pretending, I've never heard that question before. And aren't you interesting? I mean, we did Brothers Grimm, I was in LA at the junket, 72 of these things in one day. Now that's a really mad way of selling a movie. And, and it's really bad in America because they come from all over America, and in, in their little podunk town, they're a superstar with their movie uh, show. Hey, come into my world. I'll tell you about what's in the screens tonight. Let me tell you about me first, though. And they're like that. And they come in, and you're dealing with these flaming egos that think I'm supposed to have remembered them from four years earlier when I had five minutes with them because they're my best friend now. And you start going absolutely crazy. Making the film is the easiest part of the process. And every one of these things, we're somewhere around 50 I'm having out-of-body experiences because it's a mantra I'm saying again and again. And suddenly you start floating up there and you realize the body's down there, it's on autopilot, it can do anything. Hey, look at it down there. I mean, I shouldn't be complaining because we're really lucky to do what we do and we go out and you beat the drum and you do whatever it is to help bring people in to see the work of a lot of
1: really wonderful people so we've got two last questions then if we can get the microphones three Sweet last one. questions she's ready didn't expect Quick. the Spanish Inquisition <laughs> uh, I just wanted to know how important is the art for you and how much of Terry Williams is in the art direction
3: ah uh, The thing about making movies, for me, is I get to do everything. And every bit of the movie is what I'm involved in. And this one, I actually storyboarded it. I designed a lot of it, just because I enjoy doing it. I mean, everything is part of the process of telling the story. It's not just a set. The set has meaning. It's a character in the film, always. So I spend a lot of time on the design of the movie, because you're doing a painting. All the pieces have to be right. Everything has got to support the characters, the characters, and the costumes, every actor comes in and spend a few days sometimes with them. You build the characters with the clothes they're wearing. Uh, the sound, every, I mean I do everything, but the trick is I hire people who are better than I am at each of these jobs and then the fun begins. So I have an idea they come up with a better one. Oop, I've got one to top you. Oh, no you don't. And it goes like that. And so it's a joy we really have a great time working in this collaborative leapfrogging fashion. But now I've I've got to be involved in everything. I mean, it used to terrify me when we did the music on the film because it's like the music is like, I don't know, it's, it's so powerful. And I used to always say with the composer, we'd sit on, with the piano together say, no, ignore that. Because it, most films are handed over to a composer and it's like giving your kid to uh, you know, another parent to raise the child and then come back in a few years and see if it's the same kid. And that's why you got to stay close to these things, every bit of it.
1: <laughs> we have another question.: With the recent search um, in filmmakers pledging to film their film
0: in 3D, would you want to, and do you have any plans to capture these vivid, and imaginative films in 3D?
3: Nope. No.: <laughs> 3D costs a lot of money, and if you have a lot of money, you've got to start simplifying your ideas, and I don't wish to do that. Uh, I don't think 3D makes a blind bit of difference, frankly. I've seen 20 minutes of Avatar, it's beautiful. But after a while, the 3D becomes normal. So what's it about? I mean, this is part of what we did in Parnassus, my theory was, since we had a much smaller amount of money to deal with than the big boys, let's say this thing where every time you go through the mirror, it can be a different world, and you don't stay in there too long before it gets too expensive and you get out. Uh, you, know, you do something say Pirates of the Caribbean when you're spending I don't know 200, $3 million, 300 million dollars after a while you're in that world and it's normal after the first 10, 15 minutes and so where are the surprises? And to me uh, if you're dealing with anything it's about surprise and <gasps> catching people off guard and astonishing them uh, and I was watching Avatar and it's, it's, it's really quite beautiful but you need 300, 400 million dollars to do that and I'm not going to get that money I don't want that money I want to have the freedom to play and astonish people in a different way with ideas get them thinking I think what 3D is going to be just like it was in the 50s it will perk things up for a bit I somehow feel its longevity is not that uh, that much guaranteed it's still about stories characters all of those things I mean Avatar is very impressive but I have the feeling I've seen it before
1: we have another question just there, yeah? Um, the film reminded me of Baron Munchausen because of the, the atmosphere and this man and his theatre and his daughter and everything, and I was wondering if, what you thought about it.
3: I, I think it's probably closest to Time Balance and Munchausen uh, of anything I've done, because they were the original things that he was doing. I mean, Time Balance has a theatre as well. It's, it's that business of the travelling show, which I've always been fascinated by, and uh, whether it still has any meaning or relevance to uh, the modern world and it's like that in both films I mean, the theater there is just in the way of the rational, reasonable people and yet it may be the solution to things this one, again, nobody's paying attention to it but it might just change your life if you spend a couple of minutes pay your five quid and go in That's a most people are not paying to go in there If you watch the film, actually the women when they come out That's when the money starts flowing. Up to that point, people have been sneaking in, cheating. It's like I was a kid when the circus came to town and uh, you'd sneak in behind the canvas. That was it. So I think that's what was going on there.
1: Please, will you join me in thanking Terry Gilliam?
2: Thanks for listening to this Barbican Screen Talk with Terry Gilliam. If you'd like to hear more and support film at The Barbican, please subscribe to the podcast via iTunes or Acast, or visit barbican.org.uk slash screentalksarchive. And we'd like to know what you think about talks. Talk to us on social media at Barbican Centre.
0: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.